Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 151. After winning several victories in the South, Lord Cornwallis sat in control of Georgia and South Carolina. Holding on to these states was his primary directive, but he was authorised to take the offensive if conditions were favourable. His victory at Camden emboldened Cornwallis to do just that, setting off for North Carolina on September 8th, 1780. He advanced to Charlotte, North Carolina, in late September, and remained there for a few weeks before withdrawing after pressure from backwoodsmen. It would have been prudent for Cornwallis to stay on the defensive, but that's not the type of general Cornwallis was. Meanwhile, the Patriots had a shake-up of their command. It was clear that Horatio Gates was out of his depth, and so Congress asked Washington to suggest a replacement. He chose Nathaniel Green, one of his favourites. Green didn't seek to make a bold and decisive action to defeat the British, but instead to inflict death by a thousand cuts. He moved deliberately but energetically. He would prefer to cut supply lands, steal contraband, pick and choose their battles and places to make a stand. Green decided to split his forces, sending a small group out west. Cornwallis sent a force out to meet them, but didn't remember what happened in his last advancement. The Americans were again victorious, with less than half of the British force managing to escape the debacle. Cornwallis chased the Patriot expeditionary force northwards. The Patriots decided to regroup in Virginia, while Cornwallis moved to Hillsborough in northern North Carolina. Cornwallis called for Loyalist supporters to gather, but few did. They expected Green to be reinforced with the Virginians and soon to reclaim the state. Therefore, pledging to the British seemed pretty foolish. In March 1781, Green pressed southwards into North Carolina and fought the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which ended up being a British victory, but Cornwallis was unable to pursue Green. Instead, Green marched south when the British moved east, with the intention to push on to South Carolina and Georgia. The obvious move for Cornwallis would be to move south to cover Green and to protect Charleston, but Cornwallis, with no patience for defence, thought differently. Instead, he thought the war must be won in Virginia, and so he marched into the Old Dominion with no plan and 1,600 soldiers, meeting up with reinforcements sent by Clinton at Petersburg, Virginia, in May 1781. Green, unopposed, moved into the southern states and started capturing British outposts. By July, the area of British control was reduced to Wilmington, Charleston and Savannah, along with the adjacent territory. Green would never get his victory. He won a battle at Utah Springs in September, but the Patriot force was too exhausted to take any of the three British possessions. The British would end up evacuating the settlements, due to events further north. To understand why, we need to go back to Cornwallis. Clinton, still in New York, was shocked that Cornwallis had marched into Virginia while he was still conquering North Carolina. His words were, quote, My wonder at this move of Lord Cornwallis will never cease, but he has made it, and we shall say no more, but make the best of it. End quote. 
All Clinton had planned on doing in Virginia was raiding the Patriots. Benedict Arnold had set up a base at Portsmouth, and he raided as far as Richmond. But the French made moves which threatened Arnold with encirclement. This group united with Cornwallis and the reinforcements to give a force of 7,000. The Americans had been concerned by Arnold's raids, and so Washington sent a group of 1,200 Continentals under the command of the Marquis de Lafayette to handle it. He was reinforced, but not by enough troops to challenge Cornwallis. Instead, Cornwallis marched beyond Richmond to Tarleton in June, and from there to Charlottesville, where he forced the legislature and Governor Thomas Jefferson to flee. From there, he turned to Williamsburg. Lafayette followed. On June 26, 1781, while Cornwallis was at Williamsburg, he received instructions from Clinton. It had become apparent that a large French fleet was moving from Brittany and would soon arrive in North America. Clinton thought the best option for the British would be to withstand the French threat and then hope that the Patriots would be exhausted so that they could strike against them. Therefore, Cornwallis should travel to Chesapeake Bay and fortify a strong position before leading the majority of his force northwards to unite with Clinton. It's quite telling about how desperate the British war effort was becoming that their best plan was that the Americans would decide to give up for some reason. Despite this, it was a sensible response to the French fleet, but it was not framed as an order. Cornwallis had the authority to take other decisions if he thought he had a better plan, and of course, Cornwallis thought he had a better plan. He thought a small force in Virginia would be useless, so they should abandon it. He would instead move back to the Carolinas, regroup, then move to Portsmouth, Virginia, and set sail for New York. However, on June 27th, the day after Cornwallis received word from Clinton, Clinton received word from Germain. If your gut reaction to that is that the last person the British could do with being involved in their planning at this moment in time is Germain, you would be correct. Germain criticised Clinton for not doing enough in the Chesapeake. Clinton, who had been planning to resign and knew that Cornwallis would be his replacement and that those in London seemed to prefer Cornwallis's approach, sent new orders to Cornwallis. He should not travel back to the Carolinas. Instead, he should travel to the Chesapeake Peninsula between the James River and the York River. He should then set up a base at Old Point Comfort, a secondary base at Yorktown, and send any troops to New York if he could. Cornwallis decided to send none of his troops to New York, to ignore Old Point Comfort altogether, and to start building fortifications at Yorktown, as well as the nearby settlement of Gloucester. Cornwallis was blissfully unaware that he had ensnared himself in a trap of his own making. To fully understand why, it's worth paying a bit more attention to the French fleet that was crossing the Atlantic. By this point, the Americans were war-weary. To try and force a decisive result in 1781, they sent a special mission to France under the leadership of Colonel John Lawrence. Lawrence requested a special French push, a move that was supported by the Commander-in-Chief, Washington, the General in the American Forces, the Marquis de Lafayette, the commander-in-chief of the French Expeditionary Force, Jean-Baptiste Bernatier de Vimbier, Comte de Rochambeau, who was based in Rhode Island, and Benjamin Franklin, the American ambassador to France. 
Jean was receptive to the plea, and the French approved the plan. Admiral François-Joseph Paul de Grasse took a strong fleet across the Atlantic in March 1781. He travelled initially to the West Indies, and from there to Wethersfield, Connecticut, where he met with Rochambeau and Washington. They decided to combine their forces and attack New York, but Rochambeau was nervous about this decision. It would be a big risk to move against New York, with no guarantee of success. It was at this point that they learned Cornwallis had trapped himself on the Chesapeake Peninsula. The French officers pressured Washington to change focus, and he reluctantly agreed. De Grasse closed off the exit of the bay on August 30th, while Washington made his way to cut off the land route. Lafayette was instructed to try and hold down Cornwallis, while he brought extra support. Washington had already reached Philadelphia before Clinton realised that Cornwallis was in danger, and it wasn't until he was literally surrounded on land and sea that Cornwallis had the same realisation. Cornwallis was faced with two options. He could either try and push through hundreds of miles of enemy territory and suffer heavy casualties, or he could wait for the British Navy to save him. He chose the second option. However, the British Admiralty did not realise the threat when de Grasse left France in March, assuming that the British fleet in the Caribbean would be able to handle the French. However, Admiral Rodney also misjudged the situation. He knew that de Grasse had sailed north, but thought that de Grasse had split his navy. Rodney, who was ill, sailed back to England, while dividing the rest of his fleet between North America and the Caribbean. The Caribbean force... I have to mention, was led by Sir Peter Parker. Rodney suggested that Parker send some of his ships north, and he eventually did, not realising that a crisis was about to unfold in the Chesapeake, Parker didn't send the ships until it was too late. With great power comes a great need to anticipate naval crises. All this meant that when the French and British fleets engaged on September 5th, it was a comfortable victory for the French. De Grasse then received reinforcements, and the French position became untouchable. The Franco-American land forces under Rochambeau and Washington started to move in and to bombard Yorktown. Cornwallis waited in vain for support to arrive, and Clinton had gathered a force of 7,000 to assist. But they didn't have the strength at sea to break through the French lines. It became apparent soon enough that Cornwallis had no option but to surrender. On October 17th, he offered to surrender on the condition that his troops return to Britain and pledged to not take up arms against America or France, but Washington insisted on a complete surrender. Cornwallis had no choice but to comply, as he did on October 19th. And just like that, it's over. They tended to their wounded, they counted their dead. Black and white soldiers wondered alike if this really meant freedom. Not yet. According to legend, as the British marched out of Yorktown, a British band played The World Turned Upside Down. Although I'm obliged to mention it could have been The Kingle Coming to His Own Again, which apparently had the same music and would kind of make more sense. Historians are nothing if not killjoys. That said, the world had turned upside down. There was still some scattered fighting in the Carolinas and Georgia, along with some in the Ohio Valley, 
But to all intents and purposes, the British now gave up in their attempt to subdue the American rebellion. Cornwallis and Clinton returned to England, where they would fight about who was really responsible. Clinton would write a history that would not be published for another century, while Cornwallis would go on to have an imperial career in Britain's new focus, India. Although it wouldn't be fair to blame just one of them, as I hope I've made clear, the true blame for the loss of the American colonies lay with decades of disastrous British decisions ranging back to the end of the Seven Years' War. But we'll have time to get into all of that, starting next time. Join me then when we cover the Peace of Paris.